would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number one. Exodus chapter number one. I am excited to be able to begin this morning a series of sermons from the book of Exodus. We'll be here for some time in uh, what I think will be a, an enjoyable and encouraging uh, study in, in, uh, in the Bible together. I have been looking forward to this series for some time. Exodus has become among uh, my favorite books of the Bible, and I always enjoy preaching from narrative passages in the Bible. When Jesus really desires to, to press a point, to emphasize a truth with his audience, he often uses a parable because story is powerful. If, if you really want to communicate, you often do so through story. Here we have the artfully crafted story of Israel's history communicating to us the person and nature of God and the trials and travails of God's people along the way. So buckle up and let's begin here in Exodus chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1 and all of chapters 1 and 2 will be the focus of our study this morning. If you found your way there to Exodus 1, I'd like to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 1 and verse 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8 says, A new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further and if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before a midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Now a man 
from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a woman from the Hebrews to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of water. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a leader and a judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And some of the shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughter. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There is a great deal that I want to say in the way of introducing our study in the book of Exodus, much of which I will hold for later weeks in our study, Lord willing. But I want you to take note that there is a special invitation from the New Testament to understand ourselves in the sandals of the people of Israel. Often <clears throat> we run to see ourselves in Old Testament passages, and often we do so um, as an act of violence against the passage itself. 
misinterpreting or misrepresenting Old Testament texts by trying to see ourselves there in a variety of ways. Seldom does a week pass that I don't see a bad example of this in some social media snippet of a sermon from somewhere. But here in Exodus, things are a little different. The Bible is inviting us to understand the experience of the people of Israel as a parallel to our own experience. Here they are in Egyptian bondage. God sends Moses as the great deliverer. Through a series of miraculous acts, Moses is able to lead them out into the wilderness and on the cusp of the promised land. They come safely out of Egypt under the blood of a slaughtered lamb. Through mighty acts of God, they are delivered through the waters of the Red Sea. They're not at the end of the Exodus event, at the end of Moses' life, where they hope to be ultimately, but they're better off than they were in the beginning. They are headed in the direction of a land that flows with milk and honey, in the direction of the promised land. Now, that experience in so many ways parallels our experience as followers of Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, in bondage, not in Egypt, but to our own sin, the sin nature that so corrupts us, bound us. If you are apart from Christ, whether you are aware of it or not, you are enslaved to your sin. You have no other course of action but to sin against God, except that you come under the blood of the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world and find liberty from your bondage. Out through the waters of baptism, as Peter describes in 1 Peter, wandering through the wilderness in our pilgrimage here until we reach the promised land prepared for us. There are tremendous parallels between who we are in Christ and this journey that we find ourselves on and the people of Israel and their plight in Egypt. Very quickly, we pick up the narrative in Exodus 1, right where it left off in Genesis chapter number 50. Because we turn the page to a new book, we often forget the context that Genesis provides for us. Joseph was himself sold into slavery. Through a series of dreadful events, Joseph finds himself first enslaved in Potiphar's house, then wrongly accused of a sexual assault in prison, a dream interpreter in prison in hopes that that would get him out, only to find that the baker and the butler betrayed him upon their release. So after a long series of time, 13 years, Joseph suffered with this miserable plight brought on him by his brother's evil actions. He finally ascends to the place of the prime minister in the nation of, of Egypt. And for many years, the people of Israel enjoyed the favor of the Egyptian people because of the influence of Joseph who came before them. The people of Israel were adored within the Egyptian culture. They were celebrated within the Egyptian culture. It was Joseph, the Israelite, who had saved the nation of Egypt from the great famine decades ago. But the Bible says in verse 8 that a new king arose in Egypt who knew not Joseph. History tells us that there was an entirely new dynasty that swept into the nation of Egypt, overtook the, the, the leadership, the authority, the kingship, of Egypt. So the break with Egypt's past was complete. Not only did he not know Joseph, but others within his cabinet knew not Joseph. It was a new day. Whereas the people of God had once enjoyed influence, 
had once been adored within the Egyptian culture, things had now changed drastically. Sound familiar? And so the oppression of the Egyptian people gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier against the people of God. There is a constant ratcheting up of the pressure against the people of Israel. They are oppressed. They are worked ruthlessly. The materials they need to, to make production were removed and production demands were increased against them. Everything that could be humanly done to squash the growing tide of Israelite influence was done by Egyptian leadership. This is kind of a backhanded way of encouraging you as a congregation of God's people, but I want you to take note that the people of God rarely in the history of God's people have enjoyed ma majority status in any culture. I, I, I hear a lot of woe is me, chicken little syndrome today in the Western church sort of decrying the fact that we have been marginalized and that there is the likelihood of coming oppression. And I want you to know that under those conditions, there is no need to panic. God is entirely in control. And that it's under those conditions that God has often throughout history been pleased to do his greatest work among us. Under the duress of persecution, the people of God were thriving. The unseen hand of God preserved them and he prospered them even in the face of great oppression. Look at verse 12. The Bible says the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Historically, everywhere persecution has been increased against the church, it has served to fan the gospel flame. If you go to the far reaches of the earth today, where the gospel is scarcely preached and Christians are greatly persecuted, you'll find that within that band of believers, there is no real want for the removal of persecution's effect in their circumstance. It is constantly fanning the gospel flame. Where God is doing his greatest work is under the greatest pressure for the church. We needn't fear trial, tribulation, nor persecution. God is not shocked or astonished. Jesus spoke of this reality throughout his ministry. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Paul said to the church as a means of encouragement, through much trial and anguish must you enter the kingdom of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning, fear not. And sometimes our response is a little wacky too. Notice that what the people of Israel do, especially if you're familiar with the whole narrative of the book, narrative of, the book of Exodus, that the mentality of the people, their idea was not to immediately run to reforming Egyptian society. The idea was, let's just get out. Now spiritualize that for a moment in a, here in our American context. The, the agenda... The goal for the people of God in an ever-declining moral climate, as American Christians, our primary goal, our objective as the church is not to reform the culture. Our goal is to get out 
by faith in Jesus, living in this world, being not of this world, and to share with those around us that there is a way out and his name is Jesus Christ. This is good for us, church. This is good. This is a word of warning. This this is a setting of a trajectory for the people of God that that needs to be heralded in our day and age. we uh, We will never, 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 never be able to set this upside down world on its head. Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way and there are few who find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go thereby. We function at optimal level when we are oppressed, persecuted, and in the minority. Embrace your meager role and declare boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ that promises that for us there is a way out. The second Moses has come to get us, and he has done what the first Moses could not do leading us not to the edge of the promised land, but all the way through that we would enter into the rest that has been prepared for us. Aren't you glad for what Jesus has done? So we can stop with our weeping and our wailing and the gnashing of teeth about all that we see in the news, and we can rejoice that we have a king who rules and reigns eternally. His name is Jesus, and all is well with Christ. Oh, I hope you see this. In our text, I, I, want you to, I want you to see, beginning in, in chapter 2, we could talk more about the ways God multiplied and prospered the people of God even under oppression. But I, I want you to see in, in chapter 2 that, that even where there's not a great deal of conversation about what God is doing behind the scenes, that God is actively working for the good of his people. Chapter 2 and verse 1 says, A man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen. This is 80 years before the Exodus. 80 years. Now, I'm sure Moses' mama looked at him on the day of his delivery and said, this is a wonderful child. He's beautiful. And she must have imagined that he would grow up to be a great man, that he would do great things. Perhaps she had spiritual ambitions for Moses. He'll be a righteous man, a good man, a godly man. But not even Moses' mama would have guessed that he would lead the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Eighty years before the Exodus, God was at work for the liberation of his people. Eighty years. Now, there's encouragement there. There's encouragement that God has not forgotten nor forsaken. But there is the discouragement that comes with realizing that often the fulfillment of God's promises come after, after the passing of great time. Eighty years, eighty years, eighty years, but God had not forgotten. Pharaoh's daughter goes down in verse 5 to the Nile. She finds him there, and then this strange twist of fate. She finds the child Moses. She loves the child. She takes him back. 
And the sister of Moses says, I might be able to dispatch a Hebrew woman who could nurse the child. And she goes and gets Moses' mother, and Pharaoh's daughter says, you know, I'll pay you for taking care of this child. How about that? Some of you moms say amen to that. Go for that. And Moses' mother receives a, a wage from Pharaoh to raise the child that Pharaoh had once decreed should die simply because he was born a male child. This culture of infanticide, the killing of children, has been alive and well in uh, wicked circles for a long, long, long time. And, and so God is at work in, in preserving Moses. Providentially, as a child, Moses is preserved by the hand of God. He, he, God is lining his life up in ways that no one could have imagined. The fact that he's found in the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter means that he'll be reared in the home of Pharaoh, which means that he'll be well accustomed to the processes and the procedures of interacting with Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's court. This is an incredible thing that God does here. He, he takes the child who was supposed to be killed by the hand of Pharaoh and puts him in Pharaoh's house as a live-in operative for a period of 40 years so that he can learn the ways of the Egyptian leadership, subvert their authority, and deliver the people of God through. It really is a remarkable thing. Verse 11, the Bible says, Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? And he asked, the man replied, who made you a leader and judge over us? Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses became afraid and thought, what, is, or what I did is certainly now known. There's a couple of things I want you to see here in these few verses. There, there is a growing sense in which Moses identifies with the people of Israel. In, fact, in spite of the fact that he is reared in, in the home of Pharaoh, he is here identifying with the Israelite people. He goes out and he sees a Hebrew being oppressed, and there is a want immediately to, to retaliate, to come to the defense of this person who is from within his own people. It says something about the character, the nature of, of Moses' character, that he would defend someone who was here disadvantaged or at least being uh, beaten or mistreated by one of the Egyptians. But, but what he does is not right, right? I, I, would, I would not advise you to go out and kill anybody. That would not be a good thing for you to do. There are all kinds of justifications for what Moses does here. I don't, I don't think there can be any beating around the bush. Moses sins against God in murdering this Hebrew, and he understands his sin in that he premeditates the murder, it seems, and then premeditates the burial of the body. He hides him in the sand, the only place in the Egyptian desert to hide a body. Moses has a growing sense of identification with the Hebrew people, but here I want you to note also that his life is positive, positively shaped by the consequences of his own sin. Because of this episode in Moses' life, he gets out of Egypt, finds his way down to Midian, ultimately meets Jethro, marries Zipporah. God speaks to him there, begins to work and move in his heart. God uses that episode in Moses' life to make him the man that he will ultimately become. Now, that's a strange thing to hear from a Baptist preacher, that the consequences of Moses' sin positively influence 
his life. Y'all tracking with me? Now, I want you to take note of that because there are some of you who are here this morning who have convinced yourself that you are of no use to the kingdom because of something you did in your past. And I want you to know that much like Moses, God is able to take your heap of ashes and to do something remarkable with it. And it may just be that within that little circle of addiction or struggle or immorality or evil, and there's no changing the nature of the sin. It is an evil thing, just as Moses' sin was evil. It may be that there is a niche in ministry for you, that you may be the handout to those who've gone the wayward way in just the way that you have in your own life. We may not think in these terms all the time, but, but think for a moment, Christian folk, at how many of you are where you are, at least in part, as a result of the consequences of some sin in your life. Amen. How God has used even what you meant for evil for your good and for the good of those around you. God, God is not limited by our wisdom. If God is waiting on us to all get together and make a series of good decisions to do something great in the world, he's in bad shape. But he's not limited by our foolishness. See, Genesis 50 and 20 sets the stage for everything we read in the early chapters of Exodus. It's there that Joseph's brothers come before him after the death of their father. And they say, don't you want to kill us now? Now that our father is dead, there's no recourse for our judgment. Don't you want to kill us for what we did to you way back then? And Joseph says, no, what you fail to understand is that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring many people through the famine, to save many, even as it is this very day. And in many instances, your mess, what you at that moment in your life meant for evil, or what someone else meant for evil against you, God intends to use for your good to positively shape you, to make you to be the man, the woman, the boy or girl that he would use best in service to the advancement of his kingdom. Moses' life is shaped positively even by the consequences of his own evil sin. Then he's rejected by his people, and his life is shaped positively by the rejection of his own people as well. Some of you have been rejected. Some of you struggle with that. You're working through that. We could work through examples of our being rejected at various turns and much the way we think about our engaging in sin and that having a positive impact. We're not looking for those kinds of things. We'd rather for just blessing to fall in our lap. But so often it doesn't work that way. Moses is rejected out of hand by his people. This is sort of the microcosm of what Moses will experience later as the leader of the people of Israel. But but there are a number of ways that we see Moses' later ministry sort of begin to pattern itself here in these early passages. In verses 14 and following, in fact, in the latter part of verse 14, the Bible says, Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. Tells you something about Moses' character. He, he drove away many shepherds. He's, there's bravery, there's courage on the part of Moses. Comes to the rescue of Zipporah. 
Verse 18, when they returned to their father, Reel or Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And the fathers sent back the daughters to retrieve Moses and to bring him to their home that they would enjoy a meal together. Verse 21 says, Moses agreed to stay with a man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom before he said, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Now just quickly, let me walk you through this few verses. This, this is what is known in biblical studies as a betrothal-type scene. It is a scene in the Bible in which someone gets engaged. If you go back to Genesis 24, 1 through 58, it's Isaac. Abraham sends Eleazar, his servant, to go and retrieve a wife for Isaac, and he goes to where? He goes to a well. And he meets Rebekah there, and ultimately the two are put together. If you go to Genesis 29, 1 through 20, Jacob goes to the well, and there is Rachel. And he falls head over heels in love with Rachel. Rachel goes back to her father, Laban's home, tells of Jacob's kindness back at the well. The father says, go get him, bring him home for a meal. And ultimately, they're put together, only it takes seven extra years for Jacob to be put together with Rachel. But that's another story for another day. Here you have certain elements of the engagement scene depicted. And when you, when you see a scene like that, there are others. For instance, John 4, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Our expectations in John 4 are set by what we know of this well scene in the Old Testament. When you find those passages, you can always find the meaning of the passage itself by what is present there and not elsewhere. Or perhaps even what is missing there that's included elsewhere. Here's what you'll find in every betrothal well-side scene in the Bible. The man who is there at the well, who eventually becomes engaged to the woman there at the well, always goes to the father and proudly identifies himself. He tells of his family, of his lineage, of his ancestry, and thereby uh, sort of commends himself and his name to the father before the engagement is sealed. There is no such mention of Moses' name here in the betrothal scene. The engagement happens with no mention of where Moses came from at all. In fact, when the seven daughters of the priest of Midian go back to their father, they say an Egyptian saved us from the shepherds. The point of what we see here in the passage, beyond providing a historical background to Moses' life and how he married Zipporah and the influence that Jethro would come to have over his life later in the book of Exodus, is to help us to see and to appreciate the extent to which Moses was on the run. Moses was hiding his true identity. Moses was running from God. Moses was running from Pharaoh, Moses was running from the Israelites, and Moses was running ultimately from his own true identity. Because of what he had done in his past, he was on the lamb. There, there are some of you perhaps here this morning who are likewise running, who are deceiving yourselves, your friends, your family, maybe even this church about who you really are. But I want you to know that there is an all-seeing God in heaven who knows you inside and out. That's encouraging and that's discouraging. It's encouraging that he knows the very hairs of our head. It's discouraging that he knows the very hairs of our head. 
There are no secrets with an all-seeing God. This whole beating our chest and declaring that only God can judge me, when I hear someone say something like that, it's always evident to me that they have no idea whatsoever what it means to say that God can judge me. Indeed, he can. And his is a judgment too fierce to bear. If, if, if you're just hiding out, if you're running from who you are, you had better find refuge in the person of Jesus before the judgment of God comes against you. Amen. Moses was running. Exodus 2 begins on a rather encouraging note. Verse 23 says, After a long time the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. Almost 80 years had passed since the birth of Moses. 80 years since God began to intervene in the death of those infant Hebrew children. Almost 80 years. The Bible here says God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not that he had forgotten. This is biblical language. For God was preparing himself to honor a promise sealed in history. God heard the cry of the people. There's an effect here in Exodus 2 where God's name is absent intentionally, I believe. If you've ever studied the book of Esther, you know that Esther is known as a book that does not contain the name of God because Esther is written about conditions experienced by Israel outside of the promised land in a place where the name of God was not mentioned, frankly, during a season in Israel's history when they themselves were not mentioning the name of God. They themselves were given over to idolatry and unfaithfulness. They were exiled because of their hardness of heart against God. And in spite of the absence of the mention of God's name in the book of Esther, God was at work in powerful ways providentially for the good of his people and the glory of his name. A similar situation is found here in Exodus 2. As God is orchestrating the events of Moses' life, preparing him as the leader who will bring deliverance to the people of Israel, there is scarcely any acknowledgement of God's name whatsoever in the early parts of Exodus, especially here in chapter 2. Nevertheless, God was at work in powerful ways. You know, the Bible says that when we are faithless, he is faithful. That's an astonishing truth, isn't it? It's not much different than what Paul says in Romans when he says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God was not waiting for the people of Israel to gather together and reform themselves, to figure it out and to do better, to improve their behavior, to change their values, to muster the strength to obey some command. Rather, God was actively doing for the people of Israel what they simply would not and could not do for themselves, which is precisely what God has done in the sending forth of his son. Before we get to the end of Exodus, we'll have a long series of studies in, in the laws of God. If you've not felt burdened by rules and regulations, you will by the time we get to the end of the book of Exodus. 
what, what we come to see there is, is, is that it really is beyond us to bear with the incredible burden of God's standard as the judgment for our life. God sends Jesus to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. What you have not done and what you cannot do, Jesus did with absolute perfection. In fact, you know where we said in the beginning of our sermon that our experience parallels the experience of Israel? There are some very, there are some very specific ways that the Gospels present Jesus' experience as paralleling the experience of Israel. He's 40 days and 40 nights under the temptation of Satan, just as Israel was 40 years wandering in the wilderness. There's a variety of ways that Jesus is tested and tried in the same ways the people of Israel were. You know what the outcome was for Israel? They failed to honor the law of God. You know what the outcome of Jesus' life was? He fulfilled perfectly the righteous requirement of the law. Not only did Jesus do what we as individuals could not do, Jesus did perfectly what an entire nation could not find the ability to do. What Jesus has done for you and for me is something no other man, no other nation could ever imagine doing on their own. He was without sin. Nevertheless, he died on Calvary's cross, not for his sin, but for my sin and for yours, so that the great exchange might be made, that by faith in Jesus Christ, God would treat us as though we had lived the life of Jesus, such that Jesus would be treated as though he'd lived the life that we have lived. The great exchange is our unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness. See, the one who knew no sin became sin for us, in order that we might become the righteousness of God. The just one was given over for the unjust in order that we might be brought to the Father. This morning, if you're a hider, denying your true identity, perhaps even what you've done in your past, the jig is up. There's an all-seeing God who sees you, who knows you, who knows where you are, the very hairs of your head. And the only hope for you is to find deliverance not in a basket sealed with asphalt and pitch and hidden in the water somewhere, but in the ark that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Find your refuge in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And what you'll find there, you won't find anywhere else.